folks. Today we come to a passage that's kind of difficult to preach from, especially for younger people. And that is in Genesis chapter 10. Uh, You may know that in the United Nations today, there are 193 countries. And I guess the purpose of that all is is to keep peace on the globe. But unfortunately, the uniting of nations is actually in defiance to the will of God, who brought the nations into existence and scattered them to the places where uh, anciently they once were, and of course much has expanded since that time. And Genesis 10 describes for us how the original countries developed through the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And this shows us how God's blessing was upon them to repopulate the world. But the main purpose of this table of nations is not for us to find out how all these descendants spread out and occupied certain lands and territories in the post-Diluvian world. When we read this passage with chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, we get the whole story. And the narrative reveals how God blessed and ensured the spread of humanity, according to his command, into nations in spite of man's attempt once again to thwart God. Uh, Humanity was lifted up in pride, much like Cain and Lamech, and the pre, pre, uh, excuse me, pre-Diluvian world, and God thwarted man's effort to be united to build a tower that reached up into the heavens by confusing their language and then forcing the different people groups to spread out, as we have defined here in chapter 10. So actually, uh, chronologically, chapter 11 occurs sometime within the framework of chapter 10. Now, this also prevented a repeat of conditions that existed prior to the flood. As one commentator put it, as long as sin reigns, diversity among nations is required to restrain the wickedness that a unified humanity might achieve. Now, folks, this is why we oppose globalism and any movement toward one world government, because actually it's a rebuilding of the Tower of Babel, displaying man's independence from and defiance of God. It's the basis for the rise of Antichrist in the future and the coming tribulation period, as he will unite the world against the Lord. But God also shows here his care and his concern for the nations in his choice of one nation that is not yet developed and is not in this aspect of the story, and that nation, of course, is Israel. All these lands and nations existed long before Israel, but the root of Israel is implied here as it moves forward from Seth, who is the chosen line, and that will be taken up Uh, after the Tower of Babel event. And that will lead then to the covenant God makes with Abraham 
And out of God's concern for all the nations in chapter 10, he brings forth the seed from whom all nations of the world will be blessed. And that, of course, is Abraham all the way up to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. So our study today is not going to really focus so much on determining where all these individuals, places, and national groups were located, but the greater theological importance of God's purposes moving forward. So I trust it will be a blessing to us today. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word, for its explanation of so many things historically, and how your program of redemption moved forward from ancient times until the days in which we live. Lord, there are a lot of names and places here today, but uh, those aren't really the most important aspects that we want to pick up from you. So Lord, uh, bless us as we look at these things, as we see how you cared for the nations from uh, time past, and Lord, uh, provided for their salvation as people turn to you in forgiveness of their sins. We pray, Lord, you'll bless us as we move forward in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as we begin today, of course, you're going to see a lot of names. Some things you'll recognize, some things you won't. You're going to see places where these uh, uh, different parties located geographically. But before we begin, I want to consider some preliminary types of things. And one of these is the amazing reliability of the record we have before us. I want to read you the words of Dr. William F. Albright, who is one of the world's leading authorities of Near Eastern archaeology. And this is a statement that he made about the veracity of the table of nations recorded in Genesis chapter 10. It stands absolutely alone in ancient literature without a remote parallel even among the Greeks, where we find the closest approach to a distribution of peoples in a genealogical framework. The table of nations remains an astonishingly accurate document. Now that is from a man uh, giving his opinion who does not believe in the infallibility of Scripture. And what we're reading today is Scripture, therefore it's true without uh, man agreeing with it or not, but this is a, an, an important observation by someone who does not look at the Bible the way that we do. And even people who may not accept its veracity are supporting it by their archaeological understanding of history. Now, as we look here, <clears throat> you'll note in the first phrase, now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, we come here to the fourth Toledoth. That's the word genealogy or generations as they uh, introduce to us another aspect of the movement forward from Genesis 3.15, the seed, the promised seed of the woman. It's actually the fifth story if we include chapter 1, the creation story. So we're moving uh, forward in our understanding of God's plan of redemption. So um, all the nations then, historically, going all the way back to the time of Noah, developed during this period of time. So we're continuing the story that began with Noah in chapter 6, verse 9, his genealogy. Now we have the genealogy of his three sons and, and how that all moves forward. It, it continues that promised line from Genesis 3.15 through Shem. 
He's the chosen one. And then through his son, Eber, which would be, I think, his great-great-grandson. And that genealogy stops at the end of chapter 10 and picks up after the Tower of Babel incident and traces the line of Shem through Eber all the way to Abraham. So that's where the movement is going. And, of course, the promises given to Abraham. Uh, verse 1 and verse 32 are kind of like bookends uh, for this particular Toledoth. And we're told here that Shem, uh, Ham, and Japheth, they had sons born to them after the flood. And in verse 31, these were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations and their nations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So we've got the generation now. Uh, the early beginnings of national units, historically speaking. Now, this passage reveals that we all have a common ancestry, and it's not from apes. Nothing is mentioned here of race. Only lands, languages, families, nations. Folks, there are not three races or whatever. There's one race, that is the human race. We're all connected together, but when we play the race card, we're trying to push each other apart. And uh, that's not what God intended. The Lord did not select these different groups and put them in different parts of the world on the basis of the color of their skin. It's on the basis of land of language, common language, of families and nations and heritage. So our modern-day problems that focus on race and the so-called privilege of one group over another is not scripturally based at all. And it causes far more division and harm than unity. Now let's note a few things about the structure of this passage. Noah's three sons are mentioned here, and so the passage is divided into the genealogies of these three sons. And as we see how they spread out, we actually can detect a connection with the oracle of blessing and cursing that Noah gave in chapter 9. And the lineages are listed in reverse order, beginning with Japheth and concluding with Shem. And this makes the incident of Babel in the first nine verses of chapter 11 fall between the two genealogies that come from Eber's sons. One of them, Joktan, is the non-elect line. The other one is Eber, who is the elect line. So Joktan is then associated with, with his sons, his families, with the event of Babel. And then Eber, uh, after that, flows into the coming of Abraham on the scene. Uh, Multiples of seven and ten appear in the lineages of Japheth and Shem, signifying in the Bible completeness or wholeness. But when you look at the line of Ham, there's really no uh, order uh, like that. And so that kind of indicates to us chaos and the association with the curse of Noah on that particular line. There's also a total of 70 nations. And again, suggesting the idea of completion, fulfillment, seven tens. And it's interesting that the end of Genesis, in chapter 46, 
when Jacob and his family goes down into Egypt, how many souls are there? Seventy. So that's all kind of interesting to us today. And Egypt was first a place to harbor the future people of God and protect them. Later, it ends up enslaving them. All right, so let's move forward here and look at uh, this passage and see the providential expansion of Noah's sons in the ancient world and really God's blessing on that in a general kind of way. In verses 2 through 5, we have the genealogy of the sons of Japheth. So let me read that. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. Okay, seven sons. The sons of Gomer, now he follows that down just to two people, Gomer and Ashkenaz, in that uh, line of seven sons. The sons, uh, the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. And then the sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodani. So there's a combination of seven more sons. So we have two groups of seven. Now it seems these sons spread to the outer perimeters of the ancient world. Uh, geographically, they were farthest removed from Israel, and this would be in fulfillment of God's blessing upon Japheth of being enlarged. He spreads out uh, farther into the world than any other of the sons of Noah, and they eventually populated a vast area, including uh, the southern steppes of Russia, Asia Minor, Europe, portions of Mesopotamia, and as far east as India. So he is spreading out, he is being enlarged as God promised back in chapter 9. Now, the two sons that are mentioned that, uh, uh, that further this particular line are just Gomer and Javan, but not all the sons are a person name. Uh, they're really kind of a place name. Elisha and Tarshish, were places. They may have been named after these sons, but then Kittim and Dodanim, the, the, the last two letters there of I-M, that's the Hebrew plural, so they indicate a, a people group, not the name of a person. And uh, we believe that these are the, the coastland peoples, as verse 5 says. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands. Everyone according to his language. So it's a language unity, which indicates to us that the Tower of Babel has already occurred because there was a separation there of the languages. Now they're separating into their groups according to language patterns. And uh, according to their families, and into their nations. All right. So from these developed the coastland peoples of the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And that's really the basic breakdown of, of the Old Testament. You're either Jew or you're a non-Jew, a Jew or a Gentile. And this not only indicates the coastlands as far, we think of a coast bordering a large body of water. That's true. You would have the Mediterranean Sea as the largest body of water. So the coastlands around that area. But also it indicated um, 
the edge of the ancient populated world, so the, the remotest territories. So that would include the islands of the Mediterranean Sea, southern Europe, western North Africa, and then those farther out points. So eventually, as time went forward, well, uh, the Americas were populated by the descendants of Japheth. And because of their distance from Canaan, there was little interaction with Israel which suggests relative peace with them in accordance with Noah's oracle and the relationship between Shem and Japheth being different than Shem and Ham. And we see this moving forward as we look at the sons of Ham in verses 6 through 20. And there's a striking feature in the Hamite genealogy. So as we observe this listing, you're going to recognize a number of names. And all these nations are much closer in proximity to future Israel than Japheth is going to be. Many actually populate the land of Canaan, who was the son of Ham, and the land of Canaan was later the promised land that God gave to Israel. And what's most interesting is that nearly all of these nations became enemies of Israel. And that's part of the curse, the difference between Shem and Ham. Noah's curse oracle on Canaan will actually be fulfilled, at least partially, when God sends Israel into the land of Canaan and makes it for his people, the promised land, and casts out and destroys these nations that previously occupied it. And as long as God's people lived in obedience to him and were faithful to him, they were able to subdue those enemies. But when they were unfaithful, the reverse was true. Those enemies subdued Israel. Now, as we look at the storyline here, we see that Ham has four sons in verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ra'ama, and Sabteca. And the sons of Ra'ama were Sheba and Dedan. All right. Cush is biblical Ethiopia, not modern day Ethiopia, but in the same region. It would have been uh, ancient Nubia, the lands of Africa south of Egypt. Mizraim is always identified as Egypt in the Old Testament. Foot or put is Libya, which is in North Africa, west of Egypt. Canaan, of course, is the father of the Canaanites and the numerous tribes that populate uh, the future promised land. Now, here we come to the first digression, a very informative digression that connects chapter 10 with chapter 11. And this is due to one of the sons of Cush. Verse 8 tells us, Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. So this man became proverbial. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kelna, and the land of Shinar. So let's think about this for a moment. It says here that he began to be a mighty one on the earth. This is the same word used to describe 
the pre-Diluvian mighty ones back in Genesis chapter 6, who were tyrants that God ended up judging through the flood. So this man is associated with a tyrannical group of leaders prior to the flood. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and he greatly expanded his territory uh, up in the region of the Euphrates River, which in the future will connect very closely to Israel and Judah. Now, ancient kings were viewed as protectors of their people, and one of the ways they protected them is that they hunted down predatory animals. And in the annals of history, you see this very often in uh, the record of the kings. However, this expression is sometimes used of hunting or trapping people. So that connects with a tyrannical figure who controls other people. And he does so in a not really nice way. And in the context with chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, we should view Nimrod then in a negative way. His name actually means rebellion from a root meaning we shall rebel. You go to chapter 11 and you see the people rebelling against the Lord by building the tower which was at the location of Babel, which it says here, it was begun by Nimrod. So that connects him perhaps even as the leader of that particular rebellion against the Lord. It says here he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That means the Lord knew about this man. Of course, he's aware of all of us. But it not only indicates that the Lord saw this, what was going on, as he sees what goes on later at the building of the Tower of Babel, but it indicates that Nimrod's actions very likely were in the face of the Lord or they were against the Lord. So it's not a positive statement about Nimrod. We're told here that he began to build certain cities And in verse 10, that he is the leader of a kingdom, a human kingdom that begins at Babel and then some city-type arrangement in this greater area of the land called Shinar. And we know archaeologically that this was a center of ancient civilization. And this man Nimrod is right there in the forefront. But that's not the only place where he built cities. Now this connects him with Cain, the first rebel, doesn't it? Cain went eastward and he built a city. Which direction does Nimrod go? He goes eastward and he builds cities, perhaps the farthest east in that time of history. So he's following the steps of Cain in rebellion. His second phase of building begins in verse 11. From that land, he went to Assyria and he built Nineveh. Does that sound familiar to you? Rehoboth, Ir, Kela, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kela, that is the principal city. So Nineveh later becomes the capital of the kingdom of Assyria. Babylon becomes the capital of Babylonia. And these are all future Um, enemies of Israel 
harassing Israel all the time. And eventually, the northern state of Israel will be taken captive by Assyria, and the southern state of Judah will be taken captive by Babylon. Here's the roots of all that soon after the flood. And it's led by this one man who built cities really in defiance to God's will because God wanted you to scatter, not to gather together in big metropolitan places. And we find that Noah and later Abraham, they didn't build cities, they built altars to worship the Lord. So there's a vast difference between these groups of people. Now, in verse 15 uh, incidentally, the sons of Mizraim, verse 13, are Ludum, Anamim, Lahabim, Nephthim, Pathrasim, and Kasluhim. Again, all people groups with that I-M ending. And from them came the Philistines, another future nation that will be a, uh, an enemy of Israel. So that's from Egypt. Now we come down to verse 15. We're back to Canaan, the fourth son of Cush. And here you're going to find a lot of names perhaps familiar to you from Old Testament. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. Now you know that Sidon was a major port city of Phoenicia. It was the center of Phoenician uh, enterprise back in those days. Heth is the father of the Hittites. Hittites are mentioned later uh, in some of these uh, genealogies. Then we see that Jebusite... Those people were conquered by David when he went in and took Jerusalem. The Archite, the Sinite, the Arvadite, the Zemurite, the Hamathite. Afterwards, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. So these families from Canaan were dispersed in the greater area of uh, Israel or Palestine. And the borders are given here. The border of the Canaanites was from Sidon. That would be the northern border in modern-day area of Lebanon. As you go down south toward Gerar, as far as Gaza. Gaza was the southernmost city that was later conquered by the Philistines and gave Israel so much trouble throughout her history. Then as you go uh, toward the east, you come to Sodom and Gomorrah. We've all heard of that. We're going to be seeing about that later on in Genesis. Adma and Zeboim as far as Lasha. So here again, we connect with the, the curse upon Ham because all these nations are going to be destroyed by God uh, either directly as Sodom and Gomorrah were because of their wickedness and their immorality or through Israel. So the curse is connected here again to the Hamite tribes. So verse 20, in conclusion, these were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands and in their nations. And that brings us then to the sons of Shem, who is placed purposely last year, but not because he's last in birth order. And as we read the first verse, 21, children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder. Okay. So immediately, Shem is connected with Eber. We'll find that Eber is the chosen genealogy that fulfills the seed promise and moves forward to Abraham. He's also connected to Japheth, and 
It reads here like Japheth is the elder brother, but we know that Shem was, that Ham was the youngest, so perhaps we should read uh, Shem, the elder brother of Japheth. But that's really consequential. What we want to look at here is the, the sons of Shem and how this line uh, ends up dividing. Now, uh, the children, uh, excuse me, verse 22, the sons of Shem were Elam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arphaxad begot Selah. Selah begot Eber. Okay, that's important because now this is the chosen line. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Now here we have a very brief diversion uh, from Peleg, who again is going to be the one who carries on the chosen line. And it says that during his days, or in his days, the earth was divided. And we don't 100% know what that means, but the traditional view is that it was during his days, which would be four generations after Shem, that the Tower of Babel occurred. Okay? So uh, the earth was divided in the sense that it was separated or scattered out because of the rebellion of Babel. It's a, it's a play on his name, which means division. So we think that that's probably what the meaning of it is here, and that would fit in the context of these two chapters. Now, it goes on here uh, to just define the line of Joktan. Verse 26, he begot Elmadad, Shalaf, Hazar, Maveth, Jirah, Hadram, Uzal, Dikla, Obel, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. Those were the sons of Joktan. If you count Joktan, there are 14 names. So again, a multiple of seven. And their dwelling place was from Misha, as you go towards Safar, the mountain of the east. These were the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their language, and their lands, according to their nations. So from these two lines, you have developing the Hebrews, the Arabians, the Syrians, uh, the Assyrians and Babylonians, and Persians. So all the region that we now know of as the Middle East is populated by Semitic people, the children of, of Shem. Now, with all that said, I want to close with some theological lines of thought. First of all, all of these nations had a common connection to the God of Noah, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the judge of the great flood, and the gracious preserver of humanity as he blessed this development of national units. But how many of them actually continue to worship him moving forward? Now we can understand the propensity of the Hamites and the Canaanites to reject the Lord. But the same became true of the Japhethites and the Semites. 
And all these nations developed their own pantheon of false gods based on nature and astronomy, the created world around them, instead of the creator of the world. So if a people group rejects the revelation of God, they will develop man-made systems of worship to replace him. We'll have, always have something to uh, bow down to. And that's true, of course, today. Secondly, the development of national entities was God's method of preventing humanity from once again becoming its own source of self-destruction, as it was before the flood. God purposely prevented a rebellious unity from developing by confusing their language, which was one language at the time of Babel, And that caused people then to gather with those they could understand and communicate with and set up future geopolitical boundaries. As the world continues to pull away from these roots and become more global, the stage is being set for Antichrist to rule in defiance to God. Now we're seeing this play out through the erasing of national borders, Uh, the rubbing out of all platforms that promote independent thought and discussion, and and more and more more we are being forced to submit to the script that will eventually bring about God's final judgment on the nations at Christ's return. We can see how all this can play out in the future. Thirdly, we see God's concern again for the goyim, the Gentile nations. That is the Hebrew word that consistently is used here for nations. It's not the covenant name Am that he uses for his own people, Israel, uh, who eventually will be the chosen nation to be a witness to all the others. But out of his concern for these nations, the Lord has set in motion a particular genealogical line that will produce the nation through whom all nations of the world will be blessed because it is through that nation the Messiah will come. And I want to read quickly just a passage from Isaiah uh, that bears that out. I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 42, the first couple of verses. Behold, my servant, who I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Now that's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he will do in the future as he blesses the Gentiles through his sacrifice for all of our sins on the cross. And of course, in the future, he will reign uh, over the nations through the millennium. Then we also see a new unity of the nations is possible through the birth of the church, not political liaisons. 
the church of God has no national boundaries because the kingdom of God erases those boundaries. For instance, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, Gentile, whether slave or free, and have been made to drink into one spirit. And then in Colossians 3.11, there is neither Jew, uh, Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, that would be the uncultured peoples of the world of Paul's day. The Scythian were a warlike people, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. So all groups of people come together in the church of Christ. It's only Christ that people of different nations and ethnic backgrounds can come to de- uh, together and serve him in peace and unity. The kingdom of God prevails over the kingdoms of men, and one day that will be a visible prevalence. Finally this morning, this reminds us of our responsibility to the nations even today. Israel was to be a testimony to the grace, power, and worship of the one true God. Of course, we know she failed in that. But the church is given a similar responsibility in carrying the message of the gospel to the nations today. We're reminded of the last words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 28. He said to his disciples, "Uh, uh, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That means authority over the nations. And in that authority... Jesus commands us, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the world. So we have a responsibility to carry the gospel to the nations today, like Israel was supposed to carry the truth of worshiping one Jehovah God in its day. So that's our duty until Jesus comes and judges the nations of the earth before the millennial age. And no matter how bad things seem to get in the world, that's our responsibility to continually proclaim the gospel to the lost. And may God give us the grace and the strength to do so. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful today for the truth of your word. We're thankful, Lord, that in your wisdom you did not allow the nations to gather together as one to defy you, but in your wisdom you scattered them uh, into their different people groups to reduce that possibility. We're thankful, Lord, that our roots come from these uh, ancient uh, peoples, but, Lord, more importantly, we're thankful that our roots now are established in the church Uh, which supervents national unities. Lord, we pray you help us today to be a witness to all who come in our pathway, no matter what their historical, geographical, ethnic background might be, because they need to hear the gospel of Christ. Bless these things to our hearts today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.